Hey, welcome to Discourse from the Big Chair, a Tears for Fears podcast. Uh, my name is Steve Cuff, and I don't know anything at all about Tears for Fears. And joining me is Stephen Coleman, and he knows a whole lot about Tears for Fears. Everything. Basically everything, all of it. Uh, Steve, what, do, what are we doing today? What's going on? Well, uh, first off, right off the bat, I do want to say, since both of our names are Steve, maybe mm. I should call you Cuff and you should call me Coleman. That's probably a good idea. So there's no confusion in case there's anybody <laughs> you know, new to this show. Mm-hmm. Well, the, everybody would be new to this show if they're listening to it for the first time because this is a new show. Mm-hmm. So there is that. Um, but um, yeah, what we're doing here is, uh, well, s- myself and Cuff, I'm Coleman. And Cuff <laughs> and uh, Adam Myros and Sean Glynis, uh, four of us from Optimism Vaccine, in uh, the, towards the end of, of September, we're going to see Tears for Fears in Detroit, um, which I can't wait for, if only just to see Adam Myros slam dance to Mad World. <laughs> it's, it's what we've all been dreaming of. <laughs> but um, I, I, we kind of conceived this idea to do this podcast leading up to that show, which is a little over, I think it's like six or seven weeks away from this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve and I were going to go through every single, I'm sorry, Cuff and I are going to go through every single Tears for Fears album leading up to that show. So there's going to be at least six of these. Uh, I imagine we'll probably be trying to do this at least weekly or maybe um every other week up until that point and um since uh, as cuff said he does not know anything about tears for fears and i know everything about them i'd like to introduce them to him mm-hmm. in order to uh, make the show maybe a bit better of an experience for him or uh to uh, maybe make the show more of a miserable experience for me <laughs> if i discover that he cannot stand listening to tears for fears yeah i guess that, um, that would kind of present a bit of an issue wouldn't it <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but um the other thing too is like um since this is an optimism vaccine podcast my Beginnings with Optimism Vaccine started in 2013 mm-hmm. when uh, Steve Cuff and Adam Myros commissioned me to start writing for Optimism Vaccine. My first piece was about Tears for Fears, and uh, it, I think it did actually pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did really well. Uh, it was kind of funny because Sean he he was like, "Yeah, you know, I know this guy Steve Coleman, and he's a great writer, and yada yada." And I talked to him like, "Yeah, he seems like a good guy." So I was like, yeah, go ahead, green light, write whatever you want. And um, you did. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Fucking Tears for Fears? And then out of nowhere, it was our, you know, best post by a country mile. Like, we got more hits on that post than anything else any of us had ever written. So I was like, okay, there's something to this, I guess. (laughs) There's more Tears for Fears fans out there than I originally thought. Yeah, and actually, and for those who may be listening to this and don't know who Tears for Fears is, uh, Tears for Fears is essentially the duo of Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. And uh, Kurt Smith wound up getting a hold of the article and actually sharing it through social media for mm-hmm. a very brief period of time. And um, this is before I ever met you, Steve Cuff, and yeah. before you ever met me. We were strangers, complete strangers. Mm-hmm. You and were, then you we were wound just, up uh, meeting each other. Yeah, then we, we wound up meeting each other. And uh, but up until I met you and uh, you know became good friends with you and everything, you were just tears for fears guy in my head. And that's all you were. Yeah, and I think that still defines my personality. Actually, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, I guess if, if I had to sum you up to someone, like if I, if I was going to introduce you to a girl or try and you know pair you up with someone, she's like, "Well, what's he like?" I'd be like, "Well, he's really into tears for fears." That'd probably be what I would lead with. <laughs> I don't know how well that would go for you. I do like the idea that there are many ex-girlfriends that, or any friends, period, I should just say, that whenever they hear a Tears for Fears song, their first thought has to be me. Oh, it is. Absolutely for me. That's without question. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you've seen Tears for Fears live before. You've obviously been a fan for a long time, since you were a teenager, right? Uh, It goes even beyond that. uh, Legitimately, my first memories of life <laughs> some of my first memories do involve tears for fears wow um yeah it goes back to um watching mtv and being i mean they really broke out in the u.s in 1985 mm. and at that point i was still 
infantile to an extent. I was only one years old or uh, one year old. <laughs> and uh, But I know my dad had the album on vinyl, which was at that point one of the only contemporary albums he had. And by the time I was honestly like by the time i was two or three i was already learned how to play records on a turntable i learned how to dub tapes oh, i'd wow. watch mtv with my mom constantly and they were still like even two or three years after the fact of their like at least after their big american breakthrough they were still all over mtv they were all over the radio mm-hmm. and uh so my first memories are definitely seeing like the shout everybody wants to rule the world music videos and then i kind of fell out a favor of them like a lot of things probably my preteen years uh, going into my teen years and then rediscovered them mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and then it just was uh, just sort of fell fell off from there that had to be a weird thing for you in high school too because um, oh yeah totally I, I can't I like I can't even think of what that would have been like you know so you're in high school uh, early 2000s and People are like, oh, hey, Steve, what are you listening to on your Sony Discman that you're carrying around school? And you're like, oh, just Tears for Fears, you know. God, I even had a, uh, I had a bootleg of a 1993 Tears for Fears concert that I bought at a record show in Milwaukee. And I was like 14 or 15 years old when I bought this thing. And I'd be like listening to the concert and playing it for people. And they're like, I don't know what the fuck this is. Like, I like Limp. Everybody else was like into Limp Biscuit. And just, <laughs> I'm the only one like listening to Tears for Fears. And just, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely alienated me <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, people were familiar still with like the big hits. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And sure. like alternative radio would still play songs like mad world at the time which was still like a deeper cut like in the late 90s early 2000s but uh yeah it was a it created a very unique (laughs) social experience for me in my awkward teenage years i i can only imagine so my my memories of tears for fears are a little bit different than yours obviously um i never really thought much about them the only thing that i can think of is when i was a kid there would be, like, this commercial that would always pop up, like, big hits of the 80s, or, you know, whatever. And Tears for Fears would always be on there. They'd always play the Shout song. And then I remember in the commercial, and I'm sure I could find this commercial on YouTube if I really wanted to, um, the next song they played after Shout was that You Spin Me Right Round, Baby, by Dead or Alive. Oh, yeah. And I always assumed that that was also a Tears for Fears song. Like, I think a lot of people what, still do. Yeah, well, and I figured that out too because I learned later. Oh, it's not. But then I would notice, like, you, if you if I ever mentioned that song, someone would be like, "Oh yeah, Tears for Fears." I'm like, "No, it's actually not. <laughs> a little different." So well, that I mean, that was pretty much my experience with them. And I guess, like, now that I, I listen to their first album, I, I almost see them in the same way that I, I see Steely Dan now. Which is, they are a, and I mean this in the best way possible, they're supremely talented, but also, like, chronically uncool band, you know, for, and it's, yeah. that's okay, that's okay, and I can respect that now, but, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't cool to listen to Tears for Fears when I was a kid. Yeah, it definitely never was for me either, although I would try to convince people that it was cool, and I'm still trying to do that now, hence this podcast. Hence the podcast. Um, but I, I agree with you um, because, in fact, I think we'll probably get into this definitely in the third episode that there's a lot of parallel, I think, between Tears for Fears and Steely Dan. I think a lot of people think Tears for Fears either in the later period of the career were too busy trying to sound like the Beatles or they were too similar to bands like Dead or Alive, which I don't think at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually surprises me. And this has been, you know, for over a third of my life, how many people come up to me and say that they think like a Simple Minds or a Spandau Ballet song is Tears for Fears. <laughs> and I really don't think, other than being of that period and having hit singles around that time, that they really didn't have a lot in common with their peers. Um. Yeah, and... no, I, I totally I totally agree. And I, I would not have known that had I not actually sat down and, and listened to this record a few times because, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it totally, totally blew my mind. I had no idea that this is what they actually sounded like, um, especially this first record. Which yeah. is uh, The Hurting. Yeah, The Hurting. And 
I, it, it just again because shout is the is the one thing that really sticks out to me. Uh, you know, oh, that's the definitive Tears for Fears song. That's the big hit, and nothing on this record really sounds like shout. <laughs> Which yeah. is, I, I think, pretty nice because I'm not completely in love with that song. So, yeah, it was it was a pretty interesting listen. Um, and actually, if if you want to jump into the record, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little bit from the first song, which is actually the uh, the title track, the titular track, the titular track, the eponymous track, if you will. Um, yeah. So when I first heard this, I was just like, "Shit, Steve Coleman, you've been holding out on me, man." Like. <laughs> I, I could not believe how much I enjoyed this. And I, I, I also couldn't believe the musicianship here. Like, the um, the drummer especially really surprised me. Who the hell plays drums for Tears for Fears? Uh, the drummer is a guy by the name of Manny Elias. Okay. And he played drums for Tears for Fears on their first two records. And uh, was considered almost like, I mean, even though Tears for Fears is always viewed as this duo of just Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, mm-hmm. uh, he was viewed as like an actual, sort of like a part-time member of the band. And like in like the later, like in 85, he shows up in all of their music videos. He co-wrote some of the songs with them. Mm-hmm. Just like this really talented, I guess like local drummer that they knew of. And they um, come from Bath, England by the mm-hmm. way, which is, like, one of the most uncool places <laughs> uh, in the world. And I think, like, there's a few bands that have come out of Bath, but, like, especially around this time, the early 80s, the Herding came out in 83. They had been working out from 81 to 82. Sure. Um, like, as far as, like, synth pop goes, like, a lot of bands are coming out of places like Sheffield or Manchester, Birmingham. Like, nobody's fucking doing this in fucking Bath, England. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very, very, very strange place. And, and you can tell, too, because uh, one of the things I noticed when I was listening to this is, well, kind of like I mentioned before, Tears for Fears aren't exactly the, the hippest, coolest band. And, and that's not just from a... You know, from my adolescence, not thinking they were cool or something like that. Um, but it, it really carries on to adulthood. Like, there's a lot of bands that, um, you know, after after they had had their, their place in the sun, they sort of get rediscovered by music nerds. Uh, I, Steely Dan's a great example of that. Um, or you have all these, these singers and these bands that get picked up by Pitchfork, and they're like, oh, well, you never heard this when you were younger, but these guys are actually really cool. So, um a lot of the bands that come to mind, bands like Killing Joke or uh, the Comsat Angels or even like Bauhaus or Love and Rockets, a lot of these Comsat bands... Angle, Angels, you actually introduced me to. Yeah, yeah, because I, I knew you like Cheers for Fears, and I'm like, I think this is kind of like that, maybe, so <laughs> maybe yeah. it's up your alley. But yeah, like a lot of those bands that that kind of got their cool cred later in, in life after they had already broken up or whatever... Um, for some reason, Tears for Fears never got lumped in with that, which is weird because you listen to this record and you're like, holy shit, like, why Why aren't the cool, you know, why isn't Vice Magazine writing articles about the hurting and, you know, why do they care so much about the second Love and Rockets record, you know, like... Well, I think it's because, like, they begot, they became so big after this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I would argue that, at least right now, they're starting to maybe get a little bit of that cool cred. Like, they had a headlining set at Bonnaroo, Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing this other music festival in Sacramento at the end of September where they're like playing with Dinosaur Jr. and Death Grips. Oh, wow. Which is like, <laughs> that's weird. I would have ever fathomed. I'd love to go to that show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's starting to kind of, I think it's more due to like their new management, I think is like kind of pushing it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think new management pushed them to like cover the Arcade Fire and Hot Chip uh, about a year and a half ago. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, definitely like going back to the album, like it is surprising that this isn't like one of the great like rediscovered classics of the era. And I mean, it might be a little bit different overseas, but like certainly like in the US, like still there aren't a lot of people talking about the hurting. And mm-hmm. you were mentioning the title track. I mean, that's one of my favorite Tears for Fear songs, period, not just off of this record. Sure, sure. Um and an interesting thing to note is that um at when uh, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with "Do They Know It's Christmas" by Band Aid, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar. <laughs> feed, feed, feed the world, Steve. That's that's what we got to do. <laughs> got to save the children, Mr. Coleman. <laughs> 
Um, um, yeah. So were they were they, they were they were involved with that? Yeah. They weren't involved at all, which is kind of surprising because when that song was recorded, which I believe Band Aid was eighty three, eighty four. I mean, Tears for Fears was a hot band in England; mm-hmm. like they were very popular over there, at least. And they weren't even invited to sing <laughs> on the single, and maybe because they were just like too deemed like too depressing, maybe they were too much like the lyrically, maybe they, people thought they were like the Cure at the time, mm-hmm. and like Robert Smith definitely wasn't Band Aid either. But uh, yeah. <laughs> the opening to that song, Do They Know It's Christmas, is actually a sample from the title track off of The Hurting. No way. Like, like that. <laughs> it's the fucking like, two-second opening from The Hurting. That's and wild. They sampled it without acknowledging it. I think only recently that like Midge Uri or Bob Geldof or whoever the hell else was involved like finally said, like, oh, yeah, we totally ripped that off and like sampled it from The Hurting. That's ridiculous. I can't believe that. <laughs> and I think it speaks to like how unhip or maybe how uncool Tears for Fears were. Like they, mm-hmm. even though they were so successful, they weren't deemed like important enough to invite to like sing along on the single, but they could still steal like a sample from their song. Sure, sure, and I, I think that speaks to two things. And one you touched on, which is you know they're a little bit on the on the depressing side. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, though, I think the hurting it's a very pretty record. Like just the production is it's it's very glossy, it's very clean, and it's cold, but it's really beautiful. And then also the musician the musicianship, excuse me, is just like through the ceiling. I could not believe how talented these guys are. Um, the drumming especially blew me away. Um, there's so many songs on here where you could have just plugged in like a pocket drummer, you know, to just do your standard four four time, just and which a lot of bands were doing at the time. Exactly, exactly, and and you could see some of these songs easily being just like generic new wave. Um, but there's so many layers, like all the synthesizers and the guitar work and the kind of the interplay between that, and then the drumming is just all over the place. It's all these like crazy fills, and then. Anytime it just sort of locks into a beat, it's never just, you know, what you're expecting. It's always something interesting, which I, I really respect. Um, you know, and a lot of bands, and this this was big in the, in the 1980s, they would have these giant drum kits, you know, five toms and, you know, six cymbals and just massive. And it was hilarious because they would just pay, play these really, really basic drum beats. And it's like, you really don't need any of this to do what you're doing. <laughs> um, but Tears for Fears, this this album in particular, seeing as how I haven't really, you know, dove into the uh, other stuff. But on The Hurting, you can tell this guy is is using the full kit. And he's he's he really, really understands what he's doing. It's just absolutely incredible. Blown away by it. So, yeah. Good job, Tears for Fears. <laughs> Um, do you want to let's let's move on to the next track actually? Yep. If you don't mind. Uh, so this is another song where I was sort of familiar with it, but I was more familiar with a completely different version of it. Um, and this is of course uh, <laughs> what could it be? Jeez, I wonder. <laughs> Mad World. And I I kind of I kind of made a joke at you about uh, Gary Jules. Um, oh shit! It's still playing the hurting. Sorry, we're getting we're getting used to this new mixer setup. Mm-hmm. Optimism vaccines going high tech. Hey, there we go. There we go. Uh, but yeah, anyways, this is the first time in a long time I've, I've heard this version of the song, an original version, and it's so much better. It's just so much it better. It is, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I can really appreciate the, like, kind of the minimalism of the cover, mm-hmm. but at the same time, just like in the in the opening track, and I really think, like, the, the strongest part of the hurting is, is the first three songs. Um, but again, it, it just, it really shows off not only the musicianship, but just the way they're able to layer different synth noises. And uh, I, I took some notes when I was listening to this uh, last time before the podcast. And one of the things I, I also really respect about these guys is it seems like they use different like synth noises and drum machines and stuff on every single track. Like I don't know if they actually reuse a single like synth sound at any point. There's just yeah, so much yeah. diversity in uh, in you know the, the kind of stuff they're putting down, which is really really cool. 
Well, they've, uh, I mean, they've often spoken about like how like labor intensive, especially this record was, mm-hmm. and this is their first album, and it's kind of remarkable because like at the time they're doing this, they're both like twenty. Oh, Jesus. I think like they both turned twenty one when they were recording this album, like, and it's insane just to, like to how to think of like how young they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely the, lyrically, like you can tell they're still like. Just yeah, fresh out of their teenage years. Oh, absolutely. And um, a lot, obviously, a lot of it has to do with the inspiration of Primal Scream therapy. But like, also, like, just musically, like how, like, you keep saying, like, how fucking talented they were just at that point, without like any, like, I mean, at least like school training, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I kind of went off on a tangent there but no, oh, they, they would they would talk about like how yeah like they would spend so much time programming each song like every single sound programming mm-hmm. the computer programming the synthesizer um i remember when i f- the first time i ever like heard this album in full i rented the cd from the library i remember mm-hmm. reading the liner notes and seeing like the credits for roland orzable and it's like keyboard programming computer programming yeah and it's like whoa what i didn't know you programmed a computer to like play music but yeah yeah um, and, and that's another thing that really sticks out too is i kind of forgot for a little while like this this album was made in 1983 which means it was probably recorded in what 81 82 maybe yeah through 81 and 82 yeah so when they were doing all of this they weren't working with anything digital at all. Like it was all, it was probably a lot of analog synthesizers or just really rudimentary, simple digital synth stuff. So the fact that they were able to pull off all of this, I I can't even imagine the amount of labor that it took. I mean, now, you know, this kind of stuff, Oh, you just pull up fruity loops and you can just drop in, you know, synth noises and run it through a MIDI uh, keyboard and stuff like that. But what they're doing here is just, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Super yeah. labor intensive, and the fact that <laughs> there's there's so much maturity in in the music, obviously not so much in the lyrics at times. Um, but if if you were to ask me, just ballpark, oh, how old are these guys? I'd be like, I don't know, probably in their thirties or something. I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's absolutely wild. Um, so yeah, way better than the cover. Listen to this. Don't listen to that. Yeah, and I, I think like to say something at least positive about the cover. Like I always felt that at mm-hmm. least it really gave you know you got the impression of just how much anguish there was in the lyrics like it pointed out to like the melancholy feel of the message they were trying to express Mm -hmm. but i always appreciated the juxtaposition of the original version with like just how catchy it is and like how much fun it is to listen to Mm -hmm. you know put against these lyrics that are very dark and i um when i was teaching high school i actually had this exercise where i had I taught like a public speaking course and I was teaching them something about like the, how the message is important, Mm -hmm. you know, but like how you send the message makes it sound different. So I had them, had all the students like listen to the Gary Jules version, which they were all very familiar with. This is like the late two thousands. And then I had them listen to the original tears for fears version, which a lot of them thought was a cover. (laughs) And, like, I was really surprised by, like, how many of them actually preferred the Tears for Fears version. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, some of them thought, like, they didn't take the messages seriously. But some of them said, like, well, actually, it helped me listen to it more. Um, hmm. Which I think kind of defines why, at least in the UK, it was, like, it was their breakout hit. Like, yeah. that's why this album became so successful over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, based on the strength of, like, two other songs on this album, but really Mad World was the one that broke them. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, and I think without shitting on the cover too much, uh, I, I will say you're right. The, the cover, it does kind of tease out the, the darker side of Tears for Fears, specifically on this album, because it, one, of the, one of the few criticisms that I have of this record is uh, sometimes the production doesn't exactly mesh well with what's going on in the song. Um, mm. and, and they just get, they get tied down in these synth loops and things like that. And you, and you kind of, you miss the underlying things that are you know happening in the song. And when you, when you really strip it down bare, then you realize just how somber and depressing this song is, even though it's, it's a, you know, fun kind of upbeat song on this record. So, uh, you know, it's different strokes for different folks or something, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go on to fail shelter. Cause I, I really like this song a lot, like a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. 
I really love the first three tracks. I probably like I listened to the album all the way through probably about four or five times, but I listened to um, the first three tracks like oh god, I don't even know how many times. <laughs> At least a dozen times each. <laughs> uh, one thing I really like about this song is uh, when I was listening to the hurting, I was thinking about oh okay, well I can I can kind of hear how like they're tangentially related to Killing Joke and Compset Angels and all these other bands that were doing other things in England at the same time. But when I heard Pale Shelter, I was just like, holy shit, this just sounds like a like a proto-dream pop song, like Creation Records before Creation Records existed. Yeah. Um, and the opening like little guitar part, it's very reminiscent of like an early slow dive song or something like that. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I'm just letting it play a little here. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of like, yeah. but yeah, I, I, uh, I could not believe that. Like, never in my wildest dreams did I think all these bands that I, I really loved growing up. Because um, I don't know, apparently I should have been born a decade earlier because I was super into late '80s and early '90s, like shoegaze and dream pop when I was in high school. Um, I had no idea they were probably influenced by this record because you can definitely hear it. Yeah, I think um, I think Pale Shelter amongst the tears for fears canon although it's definitely one of their most popular songs they still play it to this day and it's still played on like at least like independent radio in the u.s but mm-hmm. i feel like it's one of their most underrated songs um at least as far as like when people talk about the best tears for fear songs like sure, this sure. one doesn't come up in the conversation enough and it's interesting because this was i mean essentially the second song they ever wrote and recorded Wow. Um, I mean, I'm sure they probably wrote tons of material before Pale Shelter, but um, when they originally got signed to a record deal, it was just a singles deal, mm-hmm. and they did a version of Suffer the Children, and then Pale Shelter was their second single. Okay. And a completely different version to the one that appears on the album, and I think the album version is superior to the original um, single version, which isn't a knock on the single version either. But, um, yeah, it just... God, and it's one of those songs that, and I'm not surprised at your reaction to it because if I ever play to somebody who is a slight Tears for Fears novice or only knows like the really big hits, mm-hmm. and they're kind of like not sure how they feel about the band, I'll play them that song, and it's kind of like the one that instantly they just like kind of like, I mean, they don't fall in love with the band, but they really just gravitate towards this song. And uh, if you get a chance, Cuff, actually, you should check out the music video too. Oh, I didn't know there was a music video. I want to check that out. Sorry, I had to, I had to mute my mic real quick because there was a fire engine going by. It's, uh, you know, living in the hood, man. That's that's what happens. Shorewood nights. Yeah, I, I think... Oh, God, it's still here. I'm going <laughs> to have to turn myself down a little bit. I actually don't hear it at oh, all. Oh, you don't hear it? Okay, well, hopefully it won't show up on the recording too bad. Uh, but just so you know, I've, I'm not a victim of gun violence right now. It's just, uh, you know, a lot of shit going on outside. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, you know... I think if I if I went up to my friends, I was just like, hey, Tears for Fears are cool. And they're like, we like cool music. We think you're a nerd because that's bullshit. They're just a stupid new wave band. I would probably play play them Pale Shelter and I would play them The Hurting. And then they'd be like, all right, you win. Actually, I probably wouldn't even tell them that it's Tears for Fears, which is my favorite thing to do. If, if you ever want to convert someone to a band that they, that they say they hate but you know they really haven't listened to, like, fucking Tears for Fears, play them a song that you know they'll like. And then just don't tell them who it is. And then when they're like, "Oh wow, I really like that song," he's like, "That's Tears for Fears." <laughs> and Pale Shelter and a few times actually. Oh but, yeah, and, yeah, and Pale Shelter and The Hurting would both be perfect for that, especially Pale Shelter. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not familiar with Tears for Fears at all, um, and you're a little bit curious, I would say that's a great starting point. It's probably the best best place to to go if you're at least a little bit curious. Um, so the next song on this album is where they kind of lose me a little bit and it breaks my heart because I was I was super into this record uh and then they got this track uh ideas as opiates and it uh it it just it sucks all the life out of everything <laughs> like there's so much energy in the first three tracks and then this just it just doesn't it doesn't do much for me and I think this kind of goes back to the criticism I was talking about earlier where sometimes the production gets in the way of of the songwriting and the craftsmanship and everything that they're capable of. And this is a great example because you have this like ridiculous drum machine going on 
and he's not playing a real piano. It's just like, you know, synthesizer set to piano, and there's all this reverb. And all I could think of was like, if you just recorded this and it was just him singing and just on the piano for this part, it, it would have been perfect. Um, but there's, but you know, some of these songs they really benefit from all the intense labor these guys put into it. But with a song like that, it's just like, oh my god, this is so stripped down. You don't have to do all this stuff. Just you know, kind of let the song breathe a little bit. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I think that. Um... This is one song that I think is definitely kind of falls victim to the times that they recorded this album in. Sure, sure. And, um, I mean, I I read an interview recently with Roland Orzabal where they were talking, it was like on the 30th anniversary of The Hurting, and I think at the time they were talking about going on tour and and singing and, like, performing the entire album from beginning to finish, and he mentioned three songs, and one of them was Ideas. It's like, that's the one song I just, I cringe when I think about having to perform it. Um, And it definitely, like, left their set list by 1985. Mm -hmm. Um and and I can see why it would alienate a lot of people because I mean the first three songs like you 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 barely can catch your breath, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that at least as far as like the art of recording an album or the art of sequencing an album, usually it's like a breezy opener with two other breezy songs after it. That was kind of like the tradition. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so like this was kind of a way to break up the action, but it really. Um, and it's pretty risky <laughs> like it takes like a really big dive and if you're mm-hmm. like and it's a good thing that those three songs kind of intro into that one mm-hmm. because like if you're not prepared if you're not like into them already like you would i feel like they would have lost a lot oh god yeah yeah seriously if if this was like a, a side one track one i would have probably strangled you right off the bat <laughs> right and, th- and that's a hard thing for me to say too because like this is a very important album to me mm-hmm. um and it's one of my favorite albums of all time but like i know like the first time i ever listened the first time i listened to it like i definitely kind of had that kind of like i think i like it definitely is it's 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 a track that i skip over and it's not because i don't like it but it's just because like it's sort of just i need to be in a mood to accept it <laughs> sure sure well and uh, whoever's singing on this track, uh, what's the guy's name again? Um, it's uh, Roland Dorsable. Okay, so oh, Roland singing, and he's he's got this kind of like operatic almost voice. You know, it, it's a very very distinct singing voice, and normally it works really well with all the crazy synth interplay and and stuff that's going on in their songs. But here, because it's so isolated with this piano, it just it just doesn't work. Like it, you know, it's like you know, oil and water. It it doesn't do it for me. Um, but yeah, it, it could be worse as far as songs I don't like on on albums go. You know, I've I've certainly experienced worse. And yeah. I kept listening. I didn't stop. So there's that too. And it's interesting because I feel like the next song, Memories Fade, it's almost like a redo of of uh Opiates as Ideas or Ideas as Opiates or whatever it's called mm-hmm. because it, it it's still kind of a somber track and it's a little bit slowed down, but it just it just works better, you know. It, it, it's yeah. it's the same nucleus, the same idea, but they just they're just kind of like working it out in a better way. Uh, and I think the song develops a little bit better too. Um, and this song, I mean, I mean, it still is one of my very favorite songs by them. But especially mm-hmm. when I first discovered this album, like for a while, this became my favorite song. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just because of the age I was at, and um, I know like this song like memories fade but scars still linger it sounds like he's talking about like you know a romantic partner baby maybe and he's really talking about like i think his parents Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is brings it to this completely much more depressing level yeah that's uh, that's that's a little yeah i thought it was about a a woman or something not uh his parents you know (laughs) but it definitely is like uh the type of song that i would listen to like after i like i don't know i'd be dating a girl for like a couple of days <laughs> which at the time mm-hmm. felt like months and like i'd go home and i'd run up to my bedroom i just listen to this song and just kind of like get the angst <laughs> 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 which is like the cheesiest fucking thing um eh, that being right. said though i think the song still holds up i mean mm-hmm. lyrically it definitely like it definitely hit the 14 year old in me more than it hits the uh 31 year old in me <laughs> but um 
like I still really enjoy the song like musically the production on it um, they still perform this song live mm-hmm. um, and actually this was uh, the song was sampled by Kanye West on 808 and Heartbreak oh wow I did not know that for uh, the mo- the song he dedicated to his mother, and he basically just samples the entire song, and even the chorus is just a riff on the Memories Fade chorus, but he just changes the lyrics. Huh. I had no idea. That's really cool. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's just, it's really nice. It's a, just a nice song. It's 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 really beautiful, and it really shows off kind of that that coldness, but at the same time, um. I don't know, just just the this, I, I don't want to say anger, but just the sadness and the melancholy and everything that after listening to this album, I've I've kind of associated with Tears for Fears. Um, and I also really like how going back to the the previous track, how I don't think his his voice really fits in with what's going on musically. Um, here, there's a little bit of that dissonance in the beginning, but it's it's almost better. It's it's almost in a more playful way because the chorus itself, I think, with any other band. It would have been this soaring, like, guitar-heavy, you know, sing-songy chorus. And when he just sort of isolates himself singing it behind that little drum machine going on in the background, it's it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's um, – and because it's so minimalist and so sparse, which is, like, very, I think, somewhat the antithesis of what Tears of Fears at least has always been known for. Like, this really kind of, like, proves that, like, they were able to – get a lot out of very little mm-hmm, mm-hmm. definitely uh and yeah just I, I have a lot of respect for these guys because for a debut album to record something like this it's just I, it's pretty much unheard of especially because i can only imagine what record companies thought of them and thought they would be you know they just wanted a bunch of mad worlds <laughs> i'm guessing yeah <laughs> and the fact that they, they recorded a song like this is just really cool. And there's another song, too, later in the album, which we'll get to, uh, which is incredibly ballsy. Like, as far as, like, it, now, this this record, The Hurting, when it came out, was it was it released on a major label initially? Yeah, it's um, they released it on Mercury Polygram, so they were... Um... They were a big deal. Uh, they uh, the record label actually sent them to Abbey Road to record this album. Oh wow, that is which, a big deal. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a big deal. I think that they, like I said, they originally signed for two singles, and both the singles flopped. Mm-hmm. And I think that the record company was just about to like give up hope on them, and then they came out with Mad World, and that became a big hit. So they allowed them to i think like the a and r man convinced them like hey let these guys record a full album like let them work out in the studio and as they're recording the album they came out with mad world mm-hmm. which initially was thought as like just like an afterthought b-side for the original version of pale shelter mm-hmm. and then that became a big hit in the uk huh um so when this album came out they already like had a really big hit single in the uk and it actually um wound up um knocking michael jackson's thriller <laughs> off Whoa. the number one spot in the wow. UK. That is impressive. That's very yeah. impressive. Uh okay, let's uh move on to the next one here. Suffer the children, Steve Coleman. Tell me about Suffer the Children. <laughs> Suffer the Children, you can actually consider that the first Tears for Fears song. I think I already kind of mentioned earlier that it was like their what got them a record deal was the demo of Suffer the Excuse me, Suffer the Children. Mm-hmm. And it was recorded as their first single. They had worked with a different producer, um, which I think says a lot about the single versus the album. And I think a lot of Tears for Fear success, at least their early success, can be contributed to the producer, Chris Hughes. Okay. Um, and who was <laughs> one of the, uh, he was one of the drummers for Adam and the Ants. And I say Ooh. one of the drummers because they had like, I don't know, like five drummers. That wasn't that many, but like we had a lot of drummers in Adam and the Ants. And uh, who knew? <laughs> and uh, so a lot of that credit to like their early su- success, like I said, goes to him. And I think like he kind of really brought out that Tears for Fears sound. I think they had it in them. And I think, and I know that they were very involved with the production process, but it was definitely his kind of like being the swing vote between Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith to like figure this shit out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what created that sound okay um, and the version on the album is obviously just the album version so they re-recorded it in like late 82 mm-hmm. um and it sort of speaks to like their ethos at the time um 
I think it was more of a press angle just to kind of get people interested in them, but they were known for being these, you know, kids who came from broken homes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they both um, were into Primal Scream therapy. The name Tears for Fears is actually from Arthur Janov's book, Primal Scream. Okay. Um, a lot of the songs on the herding reference Janov's work. Did they ever and- go on tour with the band Primal Scream? No, they should have. I mean, they, they were probably popular at the same music. time. <laughs> they never intersected. That's <laughs> really unfortunate. <laughs> I would actually, I would love to go to that show. I'd love to go to that show like now. I really want to see Primal Scream, and now I'd like to hear <laughs> Tears for Fears perform most of this record. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm glad you mentioned that this was the first song they recorded because in the notes I took, I I was like jotting down how this felt like their most straightforward just like pop song you know it, it's not it's not as weird or it doesn't have all the i don't know kind of the strange drum stuff going on so it, it feels I, I wouldn't say underdeveloped or anything like that but on an album that's very complex this is one of the their least complex songs which isn't really a you know it's not a poke at them or anything it's just yeah, i don't know Baby steps, baby steps, yeah. And um, interestingly, I don't think I ever told you about this yet, but uh, this song is also the bridge between Tears for Fears and their previous band. Oh, uh, the Graduate. I did not know that. Named after the movie, presumably. Is that? It was actually named after the movie uh, in the late seventies when they were still like in their late teens. They were in this band called the Graduate, and they were called the Graduate because they would do covers of Mrs. Robinson on their shows. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good idea then. And they were promoted as a ska two-tone band, huh. and they weren't at all. Um, the only reason they were is because they had their first single was called Elvis Should Play Ska, mm-hmm. meaning Elvis Costello, not Elvis Presley. But um, And it was basically a big flop. <laughs> um, and, it was, and the band itself was kind of just like almost like a power pop outfit mm-hmm. um but it, they were like a six piece and uh huh. roland orzabal and kurt smith i think were kind of tired of working in that democracy of a band and decided to kind of since like synthesizers were becoming more accessible they just mm-hmm. decided to start their own thing that makes sense I, I like i like the story of the graduate that's uh that's nice you should uh check them out and just if anything, just to see them go from being like these, like you know, twerpy guys in like oversized sweaters, mm-hmm. um, where they came from is like they're in like these like sharp like mod suits and mod <laughs> haircuts. It's really weird. Makes I'm still me trying uh, to see that. Makes me want to start a band called Shrek, where I only play songs that Smash Mouth played for the Shrek soundtrack, <laughs> which are just covers of the monkeys. Yeah, which are just covers of the monkeys. There's a lot of layers there. A lot of a lot of things to peel back. <laughs> Maybe one day. Um, so watch me bleed. Is this the song with the porno sax? I have some scribbling in my notes and I can't, I can't remember which one has the porno sax in it. I feel like porno sax probably would have been in memories. Okay. I think so. Yeah. I, I I love the, I love the porno sax because it's, it's great. It reminds me of like a neo-noir film soundtrack, you know, like, uh, oh, what's that movie? Uh, oh Jesus. Killing fields. Is that it? No, that's not it. I can't remember what it's called. I don't know. Neo-noir. That's what it reminds me of. Just, you know, someone who walks into a smoky room and, like, the sax goes off. That's, that's Oh, yeah, definitely that entire genre. Or, like, yeah. the Big Easy or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. Um, well, watch me bleed. Um, and speaking of the songs Roll Norsable is saying, this is, like, cringeworthy to sing now. He always references that song as well. Mm-hmm. I can see that. I think just because the lyrics are so, like, <laughs> I mean, it's really, I mean, there, there's nothing subtle about them. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and it's a shame, like... too, because musically, again, this is another, like, pretty straightforward track, but mm. you can you can hear the influence of this in creation records, in early Britpop and things like that, uh, but the lyrics are just, like, I don't know subpar cure like throw away robert smith i guess or yeah or like really shitty morrissey and i and i think they would be the first who or at least roland orsville who wrote all the lyrics on this album mm-hmm. um i think he'd be the first to admit that yeah. um because like the song does a lot for me atmospherically but 
yeah, like the lyrics are just kind of like if I were going to have somebody, if I was, well, like I've had you listen to this now. Sure. Those are the lyrics I'm just kind of like, I don't know. Like that's kind of like, <laughs> I mean, it feels like the same poetry I would have written when I was like 13 or 14, yeah. which I think is why I like them. That's that's probably why you liked them when you were a teenager, and why millions of teenagers probably liked them in 1983 and 1984. Oh, yeah, because you could relate. Um, And if anything, I think they're kind of embarrassed by the lyrics right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and I'm glad you told me that they were, like, 20 when they were making this album, because if they were 30, like, I I assume they were, uh, then I would just be like, "What what are you doing? But, I mean, they're basically still kids at this point, so, yeah, it's... It's fine, and the music is still amazing. I just, I just wish he wasn't singing what he was singing, but you know. Yeah, and that being said, like it's still like I really love this song. <laughs> like, sure, sure. I, it's not like something I ever skip over, but yeah, yeah. Um, I've just grown older. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, yeah, it's one of those things where I, I didn't find myself skipping over it at all. I was just kind of like, oh, you guys, come on, you know. Uh, we're almost, we're almost to one of my favorites. <laughs> changes is amazing just because we had an episode it wasn't of the op cast it was of shotgun wedding one of the other uh, podcasts and on the optimism vaccine network which you can listen to on itunes and youtube but anyways we talked about the movie commando and in commando they have this like new wave synth soundtrack where they use all these like i don't know like Caribbean drums and marimba and stuff like that and the beginning <laughs> of change that's all I can think of is is like scenes from Commando which is is great it makes me smile I, I obviously that's not what they were going for but it still makes me happy <laughs> well I um this is um one of the first Tears for Fear songs I ever heard on the radio that wasn't from 1985 that's interesting um, or I should say from 95 or 89 or 93. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that later in future episodes. But um, I heard it on like a college radio station. I don't remember. I don't think it was in Milwaukee. I think I was on like a road trip somewhere. It just like came up on whatever radio station I was listening to through my headphones. And mm-hmm. um, I kind of, when I heard it, I was like, oh, this is like one of their crappier songs. <laughs> And this is what again I'm like 13 or 14. Sure, sure. And I, I listen to it now and and they've said this in interviews too like it's it was just a deliberate like way to sort of add levity to the album mm-hmm. especially with the song that prefaces it and the song that follows it yeah um and it also it was I mean, it was a big hit for them in the UK and it was actually their first sort of hit in the US mm-hmm. um i don't think it i think it cracked like the top 80 yeah of the billboard charts um but like this was sort of like their introduction to U.S. audiences, but a very small section of U.S. audiences, mm-hmm. at least as far as like middle America is concerned. This was like their only music videos played on MTV in the U.S. at the time. Sure, sure. Which, if you haven't seen the music video, cuff. I'm, I'm going to um, have to watch that. I, I, I did not hunt down any of the music videos because I, I told you ahead of time. I was like, I'm going to listen to this record because this is my introduction to Tears for Fears. I'm not going to read any interviews. I'm not going to read you know anything anyone's written about them. I'm just going to dive into the record and just take it for what it is. But now I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I'm going to look up all this stuff. And uh, you should see the Mad World video too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll it's, check that uh, out It's pretty too. classic. And we should try and do the uh, Roll Indoorsable dance when we're at the actual show. But oh, anyway. I, I, I will definitely. <laughs> hey, if I, have, if I have enough beers, you can count on that. That's for sure. Um, um, but Change Now, I appreciate that song a lot more than I ever did. I actually really like that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, kind of a story with that song, when I saw them – for the first time ever in Minneapolis in 2004, they were on a reunion tour. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they were very much dead set on just playing new material with the exception of their really big hit songs. Interesting. Um, and on this tour, their Minneapolis show, they decided for the encore to play Change. Oh. And it was the first time they had played it together in, you know at least 15 years at that point, probably 14, 15 years. And that was the last time they played it. Oh, (laughs) that's weird. Very unhappy with the performance. Oh, but it was kind of cool to be at that show. And I was like, Oh, okay, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And, uh, recently they've reintroduced it to their sets, but it Mm -hmm. took them like a really long time to get comfortable playing it again. Yeah. I, um, 
Well, and I, I think like what you what you're telling me, I pretty much had the same reaction to it. Where uh, the one thing I wrote in my notes was I wrote the most quintessentially '80s track on the album, and I underlined <laughs> it. Like this is this is like their definitive. This album is definitely from 1983 song, um, but that that's interesting that they they didn't they didn't play it live for that long. And I also I I gotta say I respect them for going out on tour in 2004 and only playing new shit because uh, one thing that I never thought I would say about Tears for Fears because of all my preconceived notions about them uh, they're a very ballsy band and that comes through very clearly on this record and I could totally see them just being like yeah fuck you we're only playing new stuff like that just seems like something they would totally do. I really look forward to the discussion we're gonna have about their reunion album then. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I am a little bit I'm, I'm I'm a little bit leery. Like this one, I was like, okay, I think I'll probably enjoy this at least a little bit, and I ended up liking it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, and then I know their next one is the big hit album, so I'm sure I'll enjoy that to a degree. But then after that, it it gets a little bit murky. So I'm I'm interested to see um, what my reaction is to some of their work. Oh, stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> it's gonna get weird. <laughs> I hope so. I'm excited though because we get to we get to do one of my favorites. I absolutely love Prisoner. I love Prisoner so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This song is like the fact that this was recorded and put on a major label is just nuts. Um, around this time, obviously, like industrial bands were getting kind of big. Um, Ministry was probably taking off right around this time. Uh, Killing Joke is another band that was heavily into that whole industrial scene. And this song is just... It's so ballsy. At, at points, it reminds me of almost like a contemporary Scott Walker album. Scott Walker, the musician, not the uh, <laughs> yeah. shitty politician. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just... I could not believe this was on here. And actually, the first time it played, I had to look down at my phone because I was like, oh, did this did this switch to something else is this still tears for fears <laughs> and it is and it's amazing i love this song yeah it's uh <laughs> i and i know just like from reading uh lots of interviews over the years actually um for for this podcast i busted out my tears for fears the hurting box set oh wow which uh, they released uh two years ago for the 30th anniversary of the hurting it's kind of funny because just as a quick personal aside, um, my house was broken into a few months ago, and this was on the uh, TV stand because I had been watching the DVD that was in the box. And it's one of the things that the burglars did not take. <laughs> but, their, but their fingerprints were on it, right? Their fingerprints are on it, and there is still – it's a white box, so I still have, like, dust stains from the forensic team on it. <laughs> That's beautiful. They were just like, tears for fears. Nah. Nope. Fuck Hey, that. they're lost. They're lost. Yeah, this and song I've... is incredible, though. Seriously, like, it reminds me of, like, a horror movie. Yeah, and they, um, their big influence at the time when they were recording this album was, um, was, was, uh, early, um, Peter Gabriel. And if you listen to, like, Peter Gabriel's third album, you can definitely, mm -hmm hear that influence um a little bit of like talking heads and like what david bird and brian eno were up to at the time mm -hmm. but it's also like i think wholly unique from those influences like it's just like and like you said it just kicks you in the balls <laughs> yeah yeah well and, and this is one of the few times i can say i think this song is a little bit too weird for david Byrne and the talking heads which is yeah <laughs> i mean and and i never thought i would say that about a tears for fears song ever in my life i remember reading a review for a reissue of the hurting in 1999 uh from some from a british magazine where they said that it's like it's the the prisoner is the daring enough single that even Marilyn Manson wouldn't dare release. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I said, that's that's a good more about the UK magazine than about Marilyn Manson. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, definitely, like, I feel like there's, like, I don't know if Trent Reznor has ever referenced Tears for Fears as an influence. Probably not. But, mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I definitely think he would have maybe at least heard that. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm, maybe that's wishful thinking, but. Yeah. Well, and, and it makes me wonder, too, like, let's pretend that Tears for Fears were never Tears for Fears as we know them. So let's just say that you get 
an EP. This is let's pretend they they only release an EP. Okay, it's the first three tracks from the Hurting, and then Prisoner, and then that's it. And then they just sort of like dissolve into the ether. But Mad World and uh, you know the other track, there's still big hits. I think at this point we'd probably still be people would still talk about them in hushed tones. You know, like one of those bands that Pitchfork you know talks about or something like that. Uh, just because the Prisoner especially is just so bizarre. And I I kind of wish they would have, and I don't know, maybe they will because I haven't heard any of their other stuff. However, I have a, a sneaking suspicion they don't follow that <laughs> musical line very far. But I, I, I really hope that it, on, on the later albums I kind of explore that a little bit more because it's mm-hmm. so, so interesting. Well, they definitely, during this period, um, and it might not show up as much on their studio records, like at least their LPs, but their B-sides, definitely mm-hmm. a lot of them follow that same trajectory. Like, they're just really experimental and just kind of crazy. Um, there's a lot of really, like, cool and bizarre stuff, um, which maybe we can get into in a future episode. Hey, but, maybe um, we will. I mean, after after we go to the show, we're going to have to do a, you know... Talk about the show a little bit, and maybe we'll do the show and then talk some uh, talk some B sides. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> planning ahead, man. Planning ahead. So we got one more track, I believe. Well, not one more track on the version I have because I have like no, the extended I, I version with the. the uh, uh, <laughs> I've, I've got I've got I don't know. There's like long versions of Pale Shelter and extended versions and uh, all kinds of remixes and I don't know. I downloaded some bizarre version. But anyway, Start of the Breakdown is the final track. And part of me really wishes that Prisoner was the closer just because it's such a a gut punch, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I actually like Start of the Breakdown as a closer just because it it does a really good job of encapsulating the album as a whole. Mm. So it's got, like, that goofy, like, headphone bounce-around synth in the beginning. Which is weird, too, because I, I didn't think that Tears for Fears made headphone records. But start of the breakdown, you have to listen to with headphones on or it doesn't, it doesn't work as well. Uh, and it's got, it's got the piano that kind of drags down the middle of the album, but here it works a little bit better. And it's got all the synths and the drum machines and the cool guitar parts. And it's, it's everything that I enjoyed about this album. And it just kind of comes to a head at the end. It's, it's really nice. It's a nice little track. Yeah. Yeah, it's one song that I wish that they would still do live actually mm-hmm. um and if you get a chance i would actually recommend checking them out from around this period because they were still doing the song live from like 83 to about 85 mm-hmm. and somehow like the song works really well live um i really i love the studio version of the song mm-hmm. but i really find myself going back to like any like live recordings of the song um it's a uh, it's way up there for me. I even like the lyrics a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, there's like some really interesting imagery. Um, you know, the uh, scratch the vi- <laughs> scratch. Ah, I'm like going blind, but you know, like scratch the ice where there's scratch the. Oh, god damn it! I'm <laughs> sounding like a fool right now. Okay, okay, here. here. Stephen Coleman. The, ice, the telephone ring and like. Where there's ice in the vein and like skin fl- dry skin flakes, where there's ice in the vein. That's what it was. There we go. Yep. You got it. Take ten. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's <laughs> all right. Man. I really like that. Like that's just like yeah. Well, and uh, clearly, and you, you've you've kind of mentioned this too. This isn't lyrically their strongest album. Obviously, they were still young. Um, and there's a, there's a few clunkers on this song too. I think and throughout the whole record, but there's there's none of that like cringing that you get from some of the songs where it's just like oh god did you really write that like there's none of that it 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 works really well and i i wish they would play it live i hope they play this live when we see them fingers crossed oh yeah maybe if we can get them to listen to this podcast hey maybe guys if you're out there come on play it for me (laughs) and if you play prisoner i swear to god i will i will break down and cry if you play prisoner live (laughs) oh my god i uh i think the rest of the crowd would cry too but for a different reason but (laughs) All the uh, old uh, Auburn Hills dads waiting to hear everybody wants to rule the world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which I mean, I shouldn't say anything bad about that song. But no, yeah, no. I, I think I think it'll be a fun concert. And um, and who's who's opening, by the way? Oh God, uh, Berlin is opening. Oh Jesus, you just took my breath away with that revelation, Steve. Yeah, and I like I don't know, like I don't know much about Berlin. Maybe mm-hmm. I shouldn't throw them under the bus. Maybe we I should just, do a Berlin like, podcast. <laughs> but I mean, this this is exciting for me because surprise, Berlin is still around. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and I just, <laughs> I feel like Tears of Fears, at least in the last year or two, have been on this trajectory to like become a lot more relevant again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they have a new record deal, which is like unheard of, especially for a band, I guess, of their status. At least as far as like you know, they've already had their mainstream success. They're sure. sort of like seen as like a greatest hits touring band, but now they're like working on a new album, which maybe will cast about that whenever that comes out um and like berlin it's just like i don't i don't even know i don't know if it's the original members i'm assuming it's just like the lead singer terry noon mm-hmm. like <laughs> i knew that name um but uh like to me berlin is always kind of like the epitome of everything i fought against when people when i would tell people tears for fears is my favorite band they'd like to say yeah. oh kind of like uh, wham and like berlin would come up in conversation like <laughs> or they'd play like take my breath away it's like oh steve you fucking love this song tears for fears is your favorite band i hated that song yeah with, with a passion that burns <laughs> the, the only thing i like about berlin is uh one of my favorite contemporary bands uh Actually, I kind of know these guys. Uh, I've played a few shows with them before in the past. Uh, they're called Jamaican Queens. And they have a song called Water. And the opening synth line is like the same synth sound from Berlin's Take My Breath Away. <laughs> <laughs> but then but then it just it just like breaks away from that immediately. But it's, just, it's so funny hearing it in the beginning. <laughs> Especially, you know, where the song goes and everything. Uh, but yeah, it is kind of weird that they're doing that. And I was a little concerned too because when you told me where they were playing... Uh, are, they, are they playing Meadowbrook? Is that right? Or are they uh, playing free, DTE? Free, Freedom Hill. Freedom Hill. Okay, Freedom Hill. So there's there's like these three outdoor venues in the metro Detroit suburbs. There's DTE, which is the big one, and there's Meadowbrook and Freedom Hill, which are kind of the two smaller ones. But they're all kind of like outdoor pavilions. Um, and Meadowbrook and Freedom Hill specifically are famous for just booking basically like legacy greatest hits acts and stuff like that. And when I was in high school, I saw, I I never saw Tears for Fears, but I saw like every dumb band from the 1980s that you could possibly think of because these are huge outdoor venues and they would never sell out. So they would just give the tickets away for free. So uh, I think one of my favorite memories was I saw Jefferson Starship featuring (laughs) like literally one person who was actually in Starship originally and no one else. And they opened with... uh, we built this city and then the crowd got mad because they didn't finish with we built the city and then the second band on that bill was mountain uh and they play the song mississippi queen right and that's literally their only song so mountain opens with mississippi queen and closes with mississippi queen and that was just that was my everything <laughs> they learned they were like i saw what happened to starship we're doing the hit in the beginning we're booking in it it's like some mighty wind stuff. I know. It was it was pretty ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, I'm excited and I, I gotta say, Steve, uh you've you've done the impossible. I did not think that I would really like Tears for Fears, and I seriously enjoyed this album, even though and I'm sorry, Tears for Fears fans, if you're listening, I really don't like the album art. It, it's it's just another thing too where if I saw this in the store, I would first I'd go Tears for Fears, uh, and then I'd go that album cover, uh but now I would say if, if I was thumbing through records at a record store and I saw The Hurting, I would buy it without question. Like, wow. would not even hesitate. So, yeah, it's, it's in my regular rotation now. You've done, you've done good work, Steve Coleman. Well, I, I mean, I'm obviously very happy to hear that. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, like a, you're like a Tears for Fears missionary. And, and I think you'll find that throughout all of these episodes i'll probably find a way to defend all of these albums but <laughs> i think that the herding is definitely like their most unimpeachable album mm-hmm. um i think that even if you're not a fan of tears for fears like this and maybe their last album would be like the two that i would recommend to anybody who would dismiss them um okay. i think that um as far as like the art of the album the sequencing and just the quality of the songs like this is they they nailed it and it's crazy because like we've been saying like this is their first time doing it Mm -hmm. um even though they were experienced musicians before that but um yeah it's still it impresses me more and more every year just because like i realize as i get older (laughs) how young these guys were yeah and you know for I mean, they still are older than me, but like when I started listening to this album, I was at least, you know, 
six or seven years younger than they were when they mm. wrote and recorded it. So now that I'm still listening to this record and I'm much older than they were when they made it, um, that it still has that effect on me, or at least maybe a slightly different effect, but the fact that I still get so much out of it um, says a lot. And uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Get a little, uh, get a little I, sappy. I but. really, I really enjoyed this, and I, I got to say, I was skeptical. I part of me was like, I don't know if I want to do this, but I'm glad we did it. Uh, so that's. Did you just hear that noise? That was I weird. Did. That was like my my computer just uh, just did something weird. But hey, uh, I guess that's that's the signal that it's about time for us to wrap up. So. If you enjoyed Discourse from the Big Chair, the Tears for Fears podcast, uh, please like us on iTunes, subscribe to us, write a review. The more reviews that you give us, the uh, more visibility we get, and the more we can spread the gospel of Tears for Fears. Uh, Tune in next week. We're going to be doing the next album, which I believe is actually Songs from the Big Chair. Right, Steve? That's right. All right, fantastic. And, of course, you can go to OptimismVaccine.com for all kinds of content. You can listen to our other podcasts, including Sharking the Jump, Shotgun Wedding, and, of course, the OptVatCast, which is our, uh, I guess that'd be our flagship podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, lots of good stuff. And Steve's actually got a article going up on Shepherd Express tomorrow. Tomorrow? Which is Monday. I don't know when this is going to go off. I'm going to try and get it up tonight, but maybe it'll go up Monday, too. So... If you go to shepherdexpress.com and you click on blogs, uh, you will see Steve Coleman's article, and you can read that. All kinds of good stuff for you. So, yeah, check us out on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. 